Marianne Fussel from Göttingen. His aim is to reveal the true story of the Freemasons. The search for clues will take him around the world. Archaeologist Kate Raphael from Israel. She is searching for vestiges of the legendary Knights Templar. Donald Ritchie from Washington deciphers the secret symbols that are hidden all over the American capital. summer's day in Hamburg. In the venerable church of St. Michael, the members of what is probably the biggest secret society in the world are celebrating a jubilee. 275 years ago, the Freemasons established their first lodge in Germany. The fraternity's elite have come to Hamburg to celebrate the anniversary. For the first time, a camera has been allowed to film their ritual meeting. Normally, such assemblies are off limits to the outside world. Worldwide, there are five million Freemasons. In some countries where the society is banned, members risk their lives when they meet. What kind of people are these Freemasons, who operate in secret and who have always been persecuted? What sort of knowledge do they take into their lodges? And why is the outside world kept in the dark about the organization? A hidden parallel world exists in our midst, one with its own special symbols and strange rituals. Historian Marian Füssel has spent years studying the Freemasons. He knows a great deal about the secret society. Legends have centered on the Freemasons for centuries because members must not disclose what happens inside a temple. They've taken a vow of silence. Naturally, this provokes outsiders to come up with all kinds of suspicions and assumptions. So it's hardly surprising that time and again in their history, the Freemasons have been accused of involvement in all kinds of dark deeds. This secret society selects its members. Mozart belonged to the fraternity, as did Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. But so did Walt Disney and Winston Churchill. Jazz legend Louis Armstrong was also a member, as was George Washington, one of the founding fathers of the United States. 
What goes on behind the locked doors of a Freemason temple? Is it really just a case of good person being turned into a better one? Many critics are convinced that in reality, the strange rituals bear testimony to less humane goals. Every Freemason takes a vow of silence. Nothing must be leaked to the outside world. In the past, however, several brethren have spoken out. As a result, we were able to reconstruct some rituals. A Freemason begins his career as an apprentice. Later, he becomes a journeyman, and only after that is he elevated to the rank of a master. In the ceremonies, the candidate dies symbolically to be reborn in the circle of his secret brethren. Boas, das Fleisch verlässt das Bein. To outsiders, the ritual seems bizarre, but to the Freemasons, it is important because it forges a bond. You can't become a member through your own will or efforts. You have to be selected. That's also the special status that is conferred. It's not like deciding to join a club. You have to be chosen. And this fact alone boosts a person's self-esteem and elevates their status. It's often a person's mentality that prompts them to accept the offer to join a secret society, the need to cut oneself off from others, to belong to the elite, to know more than people in general. Frequently, the motives are highly egoistic. Orders like the Freemasons fulfill the dream of individuality in a mass society. And candidates are prepared to accept a great deal for the certainty of being something special. The initiation rite binds each individual Freemason to the fraternity. London, the British capital, is at the hub of the Freemason movement. The Freemasons' Hall is home to the world's oldest Grand Lodge. Marian Füssel has come to visit this venerable building, which is regarded as the world headquarters of Freemasonry. Will the historian find out more here about the true aims of the fraternity? He hopes for some answers from John Hamill. According to Hamill's visiting card, he is responsible for special questions. Everywhere, Fussell sees objects and symbols which offer an insight into the Freemasons' beliefs. John Hamill knows the legends surrounding his secret society. The internet is full of murky conspiracy theories. The Freemasons are said to have been responsible for the French Revolution. The First World War is also on the list of their dark deeds. For a long time, we ignored the conspiracy theories, we ignored the outside world, and we paid for it in the short term. Um, and we're delighted now that we've 
we're reversing it and, and, and we're back out being open and transparent with people and this building is open to the public, anybody can walk in. But if that's the case, why are Freemasons not allowed to talk about what happens inside their temples? And what role is played by the ancient oriental pictures and symbols which decorate the massive bronze door to the holiest of holies? They show people constructing a building. The Temple of the Freemasons Hall is full of symbols pointing to the ancient roots the Freemasons referred to. In front of the master's chair is the pentagram. The five points stand for wisdom, justice, strength, moderation, and diligence. Rectangular forms show the importance of geometry, which fundamentally regulates human activity, or so the Freemasons believe. The temple is based on a legendary model, the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, which is mentioned in the Bible. It too had pillars like those next to the master's chair. Over eight meters high, the pillars known as Yachin and Boaz flank the entrance to the Temple of Solomon. The building was intended to express something of a divine nature. Jerusalem today. Are there any indications here as to why Freemasons revere the Temple of Solomon so much? Our search leads us to where it all began, to the Temple Mount. At one time, the Temple of Solomon towered up in the heart of Jerusalem. The Temple Mount is equally sacred to Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Kate Raphael is one of Israel's leading archaeologists. She knows a great deal about the history of the Temple Mount. She also understands the importance of King Solomon's temple. King Solomon's temple is the first that was built in the first time the capital was established. So it's the first time since the Jewish people left the desert, established the capital, and King Solomon's temple was the first house of God for the first time built in stone. No other building is as steeped in legend as this one temple. Its dimensions are described in the Bible, but that is the only source. No remains have ever been found. Kate Raphael is about to descend into the underworld of the holy city. Close to the Wailing Wall, there is a labyrinth of tunnels. She and her colleagues pay regular visits to this place, which is so rich in history. She is convinced that down here is where the supporting walls of King Solomon's temple must have stood before it was destroyed in 586 BC. But what made the building so special? Why do Freemasons try to copy the edifice? As yet, there are no answers to be found down here. 
Only a stone's throw from the Temple Mount, archaeologists collect what has been removed from the system of galleries in recent decades. It's the overburden from various evacuation campaigns. Researchers know that each shovelful could contain an important clue towards helping them to learn more about the history of the Temple Mount. Every day they come across relics of the distant past. Gabriel Barquet is in charge of this exceptional treasure trove for archaeologists. We have rich finds, which are uh, even an arrowhead of the army of Nebuchadnezzar, which was shot in the destruction of the Tumble Mount. We have uh, seals, seal impressions, we have pottery in abundance, and even inscribed material. So we have enough material from First Temple period to, uh, to justify much activity upon the Temple Mount in that time. The divine construction plan, which makes the Temple of Solomon so unique, is described in the Bible. It is accessible to everyone, including Freemasons. But it was others who brought the legend of the temple to Europe. In the early 11th century, the Crusaders set out from Europe for the Middle East. Their mission was to drive out the Muslims and take possession of the holy sites of Christianity. Bloody battles were fought. In 1099, the Crusaders captured Jerusalem. The Crusaders were the first Europeans able to explore the Temple Mount. No one knows what they sought beneath the Wailing Wall. Divine knowledge from the King Solomon's Temple, or precious relics, perhaps. One thing is certain, even the Crusaders were fascinated by the Temple Mount and its history. So it was understandable that the temple should play a central role in the founding of a new order. Its members called themselves the Poor Knights of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon, or for short, the Knights Templar. The men took the vows of their order before the Patriarch of Jerusalem. They promised to live in poverty, chastity, and obedience. The Templars quickly developed into one of the leading orders of knights. They saw themselves as an elite, as the spearhead of Christianity. Soon, no one knew the tunnels beneath the Temple Mount better than the Templars. Did the Templars discover the legendary treasure from the Temple of Solomon in the galleries? Or did the knights use the tunnels to hide the riches they had accumulated over time?
Kate Raphael knows that some people are still searching for the legendary treasure of the Knights Templar. Whatever that treasure might be in reality, relics, gold perhaps, or as some suspect, the Holy Grail. Or perhaps it could be secret knowledge of King Solomon's temple, which the Knights revered so much. The Templars were aware of the possibility that the treasures of the temple were still in the location. They ruled the Temple Mount for 80 years. They could have uh, searched for these temples more than anybody that came after them. But we have no evidence. We don't have archeological evidence. We, we have no historical evidence that they ever found anything and took it with them to Europe. As years passed, the Templars became more and more powerful. They did not feel accountable to any worldly authority. Back then, the order acted just like major international corporations do today. The Knights Templar manufactured goods and engaged in trade and financial operations. From the 12th century, their network of facilities spanned Western Europe. The Templars had become a confraternity that had sealed itself off hermetically. The Knights' clandestine activities were to have an impact in Europe. With their dark legend of the Temple of Solomon, the Templars influenced the secret societies that came later, like the Freemasons. In London, the British Knights Templar built their own church, Temple Church. Its circular interior is modeled on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Temple Church was blessed personally by the Patriarch of Jerusalem in 1185. Paris. For many years, the French capital was the headquarters of the Order of the Knights Templar. For centuries, no one knew where the seat of the order had been located. Then, in 2011, a construction unit discovered the remains of its legendary headquarters. It was a world sensation. Prior to that, only street signs had given any indication of a society shrouded in mystery. In Paris, Marion Fussel hopes to find out whether there is a link between the Knights Templar and fraternities like the Freemasons. His research has brought him to the National Archives. Stored here are original documents from the days of the Templars, a historic treasure that could help Marion Fussel in his research. Ghislaine Brunel has spent many years studying the documents. It still seems astonishing that this mighty international organization should have disappeared virtually overnight. The exact reasons for the trial of the Templars and for the persecution of the order are still the subject of speculation today. 
One possible reason could be the military power it possessed. Members of the order were trained professionally and retained their weapons even in times of peace. So they constituted a serious military threat even in their own country, constituting a challenge to the king's monopoly on the use of force. But it was not only the Templars' military clout that was a thorn in the French king's side. He too had his sights set on the knight's alleged treasure. And so, Philip the Beautiful forged a plan to destroy the Templars. At dawn on October the 13th, 1307, Philip had his troops storm the Templars' residences and arrest the knights. The day has gone down in history as Black Friday. Since then, Friday the 13th has been regarded as unlucky. It was the beginning of a swift end for the Templars. For late medieval Europe, it was a shock comparable today with the sudden collapse of the entire banking system. The king wanted to eradicate the Knights Templar. The historical files tell the details. Philip the Beautiful simply concocted the allegations that were supposed to justify his brutal course of action against the Templars. In the initiation ritual, the new Templar had to spit on the cross three times and deny Christ three times. Novices had to kiss the other members on the mouth, on the navel, and on the buttocks. Homosexuality was one of the classical accusations leveled at heretics. Ever since the third century, heretics had been accused of being homosexual, of being in league with the devil, and of worshipping idols. At their meetings, it was alleged the Templars worshipped a bearded head and even a black cat. These concocted accusations proved disastrous for the Templars. No one knew anything about the inner life of the order. The general public was taken in by the lies. In this case, the strict secrecy they upheld meant the death penalty for the once so proud Knights Templar. In Paris, on March the 18th, 1314, Jacques de Molay, the fraternity's last Grand Master, was led to the stake. He never disclosed the secret of the legendary Templar treasure. Rumors were rife. The Templar ships, it was claimed, had set sail from La Rochelle, heading for an unknown destination with the treasure on board. Just a myth? Perhaps Jacques de Molay knew the truth when he was executed. The king had him burnt on damp willow, a particularly horrific punishment because the wood burns poorly.
On that day, the order was officially crushed. And yet numerous tales describe how the Templars lived on in secret under a new guise. After the order was smashed, some Templars, it is said, found a new home in Scotland. Ever since then, this country on the fringes of Europe has been seen as a stronghold of clandestine societies. But is there any real proof that this is where the French Templars fled to? Historian Marian Fussel is on his way to the Kilmartin Valley on the west coast. Fussel believes that a cemetery might yield clues. Will this expert on secret societies be able to use them to reconstruct what happened to the Templars after the trials? And indeed, Fussel has found something unusual. Ancient gravestones decorated with swords, knights in armor, and flowers, symbols of the Knights Templar. A row of gravestones that seem to date back to the 14th and 15th centuries is particularly exciting. First and foremost, they depict noble knights. Some researchers see these gravestones as an indication that those laid to rest here might have been Templars. The Templars came to Scotland and were buried here in the 14th century. If the knights found a new home in Scotland, couldn't the order still exist there today? Within their ranks, the knights could well have handed down their secret knowledge of the Temple of Solomon and its treasures. Scarcely anyone has played more with this possibility than best-selling author Dan Brown. His novels and the screen adaptations of them have fascinated millions. Played by Tom Hanks and Audrey Tatou, when they visit Roslyn Chapel in Scotland in search of the Holy Grail, Dan Brown's leading characters come across mysterious symbols. So this is it, the gift at the end. Jewish, Christian, Egyptian, Masonic, Pagan. Templar crosses, pyramids. Located near Edinburgh, Roslyn Chapel is something of an enigma, a feature Dan Brown made skillful use of. He saw the chapel as a literary melting pot of religions and secret societies. Marian Fussel is also familiar with the legends centered on the church. It was commissioned by Sir William Sinclair who had the church decorated with numerous secret symbols, including statues of knights. The Lamb of God, a symbol found on many Templar seals. Fussel then spots two pillars that seem familiar to him. He's seen them once before somewhere. The same pillars stand in the Freemasons' temple in London. Marion Fussell has returned to the Freemasons' hall. 
Obviously, at some time in the past, the Templars inspired the Freemasons with their knowledge of the Temple of Solomon. John Hamill is showing the historian symbols, which testify to a fascination for precise architecture. These include a compass and a square. The origins of Freemasonry are largely unknown, a fact which leads time and again to speculation. Modern research tends to see its origins in the Bauhütten movement of the Middle Ages, in the environment of cathedral architects, and within this movement, which was organized on a guild basis, structures developed, which led to modern Freemasonry. In the late Middle Ages, the members of the Bauhut Church Masons' Lodges covered the entire continent with a network of magnificent cathedrals, like those in Chartres, Cologne, and Salisbury. Architects and the Bauhutten Guild enjoyed immense privileges. They had their own laws. Secret hand signs revealed who was a member and what rank they held. In England, these architects referred to themselves as Freemasons. They moved from cathedral to cathedral, offering their services. In those days, ordinary folk lived in dark, low huts. So for them, the Gothic cathedrals built by the master stonemasons, the Freemasons, were architectural miracles. The Bauhütten were a secret society of knowledge. These weren't simple masons, but architects, an intellectual elite, in other words, who had access to monarchs, who were at the very apex of society. This had nothing to do with some low trade, but people who had specific technical expertise and who, naturally, were also able to exercise a certain degree of power in society. Does this mean, in fact, that fugitive Templars and ambitious architects got together? Marian Fussel has received permission to view historical documents in the secret society's internal archives. They include the statues of the fraternity and the founding document of the world's oldest Grand Lodge. It points to a decisive transition. The document was signed in 1717 by a certain Mr. Atney Sayer, gentleman. So the first Grand Master was no longer a craftsman, but an educated figure from a comfortable middle-class background. The former Craftsmen's Association had developed further into a class-spanning fraternity. But why? What do Lodge brethren experience in their clandestine meetings? What does this elitist circle, which operates in secret, actually plan? The Freemasons sought the proximity of the rich and powerful of their day. For the individual, this could well have been just as fascinating as the appeal of secrecy. 
In the 18th century, Freemasonry soon developed into something of a fad. It became very attractive for the social elite to become members, mainly because there was a great need at the time for class-spanning sociality, to be able to freely exchange views with others in secret, to discuss issues of all kinds beyond the bounds of politics and religion. The Freemasons were able to satisfy this need for sociality to a particular degree. Close commercial links saw Freemasonry spread from London to Hamburg. In 1737, the first German lodge was founded, the Loge de Hamburg. In Germany, too, the Freemasons immortalized themselves in monumental buildings and sought greater influence and power. But the authorities found their ideals dubious. They suspected the Freemasons of pursuing anarchy and subversion. King Frederick William I of Prussia demonized the Freemasons. He feared the competition from this exclusive society. But not even the monarch could prevent the fraternity from gaining a footing amongst the elite. At a secret meeting in Braunschweig, even the king's own son was accepted into the order. In the course of just one evening, the brethren elevated Frederick the Great to the level of master. Was the inclusion of the elite part of a secret plan geared to gaining control of the world? Why else should the society go to such lengths to ensnare those with power? It's fascinating to note how quickly the Freemasons succeeded in acquiring members even from the highest echelons of society and in finding numerous supporters even among the most powerful figures in Europe. So we're not talking simply about some bourgeois association. Even the nobility and ruling princes were also a part of the Freemasons. Time and again, the Freemasons were associated with dark mysteries. These rumors culminated in the bizarre mindscape of Heinrich Himmler. The head of Hitler's SS was looking for the Holy Grail and suspected that it was part of the treasure of the Knights Templar. Himmler reckoned that the Freemasons were closely linked to the Old Order and that through them he could acquire the coveted treasure. So in January 1937, he had the Freemasons Lodge near the Alster Lake in Hamburg pulled down. Heil Hitler, guten Abend. Also, wir haben eine heiße Spur. Das hoffe ich für Sie. Himmler felt totally justified in destroying the fraternity's temple. The National Socialists saw the Freemasons as part of a huge world conspiracy that had to be combated. Members of the order had performed their rituals in the temple in Hamburg for 200 years. But then, the Nazis banned the secret society. Being a Freemason in the Third Reich meant risking your life. Das hier muss der Raum gewesen sein, in dem die geheimen Rituale abgehalten wurden. In their search for the great secret, the fraternity was believed to have kept. The Nazis had the Freemasons' temple demolished, brick by brick. Himmler was obsessed with esoteric ideas. He surrounded himself with diviners and had archaeologists with the German Ancestral Heritage Society 
research occult themes. The Freemasons did not fit in with the image of the ancient Germanic religion, which was to be used henceforth to explain the world. The Nazis didn't find any treasure in the Hamburg Lodge, but they did cause serious harm to the secret society. As long as they were in power, the Freemasons had to go underground. Professor Rudiger Templin is Germany's leading Freemason. As he heads for the lodge, he looks no different from an ordinary businessman. It's only inside the building that the brethren put on their Freemason's dress. The apron has its origins in the Bauhütten Church Mason's lodges. It protected the stonemasons from flying chips. The top hat is an ancient symbol of freedom. The white gloves represent pure and spotless acts. The real secret is the emergence and growth of a person's character in Freemasonry, starting with the initiation experience. That's something you need to have experienced personally. It's hard to describe. That is why the search for a secret will always remain futile. Is it this seclusion that spurs the imagination and engenders conspiracy theories? But why all the secrecy if there is nothing to hide? The fact that the Freemasons are not as insignificant as they sometimes claim is evident in Washington, D.C. Is the capital of the world's leading economic and military power also the center of a secret world government, as some claim? In scarcely any other city on our planet are secret fraternities as active as they are here. Some presidents are known to have been members of several secret societies at once. Do the fraternities clandestinely determine the guidelines of American policy? Marion Fussel has come to Washington, D.C. to gain an impression of how far secret societies have infiltrated American politics. His first stop is the Capitol. He has arranged to meet Donald Ritchie, the U.S. Senate's chief historian. Nice to meet you. Welcome to the Capitol. Ritchie knows the Capitol like the back of his hand. He tells his colleague that it was constructed by Freemasons who immortalized themselves in the building hundreds of times over. Enthroned in the famous dome is no less a figure than George Washington himself. The Freemason, who here has ascended into heaven in godlike fashion, led the Capitol's foundation stone. Key circles strove to emulate him. One-third of the generals in the American War of Independence belonged to the secret order. Throughout the capital, Marion Fussell finds signs and symbols of the kind the Freemasons also used. The heart of the world's superpower seems like a set-in-stone tribute to the secret society. Even today, American presidents are still sworn in on the same Freemason's Bible on which George Washington once took his oath of office. The last president to be sworn in with this Bible 
was George Bush Sr. I, George Herbert Walker Bush. So help me God. Congratulations. But in whose interest does the president act? Does he serve the American people or the secret fraternity? Democratic power is given only for a limited period, but the members of a secret society belong for life. The presidency, too, is sometimes like an order. One problem is that you almost need a split personality because of the various loyalties involved. With the oath of office, the state rightly demands total loyalty and the scrupulous performance of duties. This can result in conflict with the objectives of some secret societies. There are three million Freemasons in the United States. The capital's biggest temple is located only a stone's throw from the White House. The founding father of the United States, George Washington, after whom the capital is named, is honored with his own monument. Built by Freemasons, it stands impressively in Alexandria, near Washington, D.C. It's not only monumental buildings. The entire capital, in fact, is said to have been laid out in line with a secret plan drawn up by the Freemasons. The Lodge's brethren are believed to have immortalized themselves everywhere. Historian Donald Ritchie knows these dark theories. But neither he nor Marion Fussell can see the most impressive symbols from the ground. That is only possible from the air. From a satellite perspective, it becomes clear what conspiracy theorists have detected. On the city map, they have identified a pentagram, a compass, a cross, and right angles, all of which are Freemason symbols. Did the fraternity really immortalize itself in the layout of the streets? The Kiplinger Library is the oldest in Washington. Here, historians are allowed to examine plans dating back to the time when the city was founded. It turns out that city planner Pierre Lafont himself was not a Freemason. However, those who commissioned him most certainly were. And they wanted clear geometrical lines in the urban layout. But we cannot say whether they directly commissioned Freemasonry symbols like pentagrams and compasses. We have a great long history of conspiracies and speculation. Uh, and it affects our politics. It affects, um, uh, affects everything else. And so I, it, it doesn't surprise me at all that people can look at this and see something that perhaps wasn't intended at all, but, but fits their plan. In 1982, the suspicion that the Freemasons do not exist solely for reasons of self-discovery and personal development received fresh impetus after pedestrians in London made a horrific discovery. Hanging from a nylon cord under Blackfriars Bridge was a body. The dead man came from Italy. His name, Roberto Calvi. The trail led to Rome, to the Vatican. Roberto Calvi was the Pope's banker. His brief 
was to increase the church's multi-billion dollar fortune. Marion Fussell has good reasons for his interest in the Calvi murder case. Why had Roberto Calvi traveled to London, where he met such a dreadful fate? Perhaps journalist Mario Guarino knows the answer. He followed the Calvi case for many years. That is how long the official investigations took. They revealed that the Pope's banker belonged to a secret fraternity. Its name, Propaganda Due, known for short as P2. But what was the nature of this secret society? The P2 was a kind of parallel government. It didn't want to bring down the government. Instead, the aim was to penetrate it with deputies, senators, businessmen and bankers. The P2 had control of the finances. Many banks were headed by members of the P2. Through his investigations, Marian Fussel opened up a can of worms. Initially, the propaganda due was just a simple Freemason's lodge. Then it was infiltrated by criminals. The secret meetings were held in the Hotel Excelsior. In Italy, the lodge is notorious. Initially, the brethren still supported social projects. But in Calvi's day, the lodge had long since changed and become a dangerous network whose true goals no one really knew about. Did ultra-right puppet masters want to make Propaganda Due Italy's secret government? Backed by the United States, it was driven by fierce anti-communism and a craving for money and power. Later, in its judgment, a court ascertained that the men who met in the Excelsior were financing other criminals. Terror was to be used to create a charged, overheated atmosphere, which the Lodge brethren would then utilize for their own ends. Roberto Calvi operated amongst unscrupulous Wheeler dealers who wanted to change Italy. In 1980, a bomb planted at Bologna railway station killed 85 people. Two years previously, the president of the ruling Christian Democrats, Aldo Moro, had been abducted and murdered. Here, too, there were links to Propaganda Due. Was the aim to pin the blame for the attacks on the communists? It's hard to work out what was really behind all the accusations. Propaganda due remained shadowy. What is clear, however, is that politicians, bankers, and mafiosi met here. They forged plans and did crooked deals. Mm -hmm. 
Roberto Calvi wanted to profit from this network. The head of the Banco Ambrosiano was supposed to provide the church with fresh money to support the struggle of Christians in Eastern Europe. Investigators today suspect that Calvi borrowed money from the mafiosi in Propaganda Due in order to speculate. But profits failed to materialize. The Mafia wanted its money back. Calvi realized too late that he had made a pact with the devil, and there was no getting out of it. Or was it merely the criminal environment that fascinated Roberto Calvi about Propaganda Due? The suspicion has been confirmed often enough, also through trials, that criminal elements belong to this secret society. That criminal wheeling and dealing was also part of the activities of this association. That those who perhaps weren't criminals when they entered the society definitely planned to accept certain advantages. That they said it wouldn't hurt to have links with this milieu too, especially in Italy, where the Mafia has probably infiltrated every organization organization already. In the end, his contacts with the Mafia proved fatal for Roberto Calvi. His bank had outstanding debts of around 750 million euros. In his desperation, the banker wrote a letter to the Pope. He accused the pontiff of leaving him in the lurch. A few days later, Roberto Calvi was dead, hanged from a bridge. The Calvi murder trial ended with acquittals for the accused, but questions remain. The case shows that secret societies can also be dangerous. Propaganda Dewey was banned, but the proceedings had no effect on the Freemasons as a whole, even though they are often accused of being the breeding ground of evil, especially as no one knows for certain what happens behind their closed doors. From the point of view of conspiracy theorists, those who like to believe in the power of secret societies, such an acquittal changes nothing. Indeed, it generates even more suspicion that this judgment, too, was engineered. So there's actually no escape from this conspiracy fixation. My belief is that if organizations which are regarded as secret have any power at all, this power is founded on legend and not on their actual activities. Secret societies have been around for a long time. They hold a mysterious appeal. But what are their real goals? Precisely, what are they planning? We can only guess. Much can be explained, and much is even banal. Yet, for a long time to come, people will continue trying to bore their way into the inner workings of these secret orders.